good to have a number of our folks back who've been out sick, uh, uh, many with the COVID uh, virus, and we're glad that you're back and that the Lord has brought you back to health. There are still some others that are out um, with sicknesses, various sicknesses, and so we want to pray for them uh, at the end of the service when we have our family prayer time. Turn with me to John chapter 2. Last week, we spoke about the Galilean wedding customs and culture and their importance in the teachings of Jesus. And of course, you can see that, you can see that in many other places other than just here in chapter 2. See it throughout scripture and the things that Jesus said would take place, the way that they take place, his second coming, the calling away of the church to glory. All of those things are pictured in the Galilean wedding. Follow with me as we read verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now... Draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Having gotten a glimpse of, and I, by the way, I sent out the video uh, over the ch- church uh, email, uh, I sent out the video to everyone on the in the directory. Uh, a link there where you can watch the video that that speaks about all of this, and it's quite well quite well done. Um, in seeing the the customs, the wedding customs, and the things that took place, we now come to uh, the exposition of this passage 
and the circumstances that surround his attendance at the wedding. We've seen the customs and now we look at the circumstances. We also see that this first miracle that Jesus performed has a relationship to himself as the life, as mentioned in chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life. The first miracle here that Jesus did in turning water into wine signified life as it finds itself at the occasion of this wedding, which in itself is the beginning of a new life for the bride and the groom, and from which comes future generations of life. As we said last time, Jesus and his disciples had been invited to this wedding. And his mother Mary was also at the wedding, which seems to signify that she had more to do than just be a guest. Perhaps Mary was helping with the wedding festivities of the feast. It would seem plausible then that Mary would have known this family and that possibly they were very good friends, seeing that Cana was only about seven miles away from Nazareth. Uh, It could be that they were distant family members. We're not told who the people were, the bride and the groom and that family. We don't know who they were. All we know is what the scriptures tell us about their attendance and the things that took place at the wedding concerning them. Jesus now has five disciples with him. They are attending the wedding alongside him. They are Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and the unnamed disciple John. What a change this must have been for the disciples like John and Andrew, who were originally disciples of John the Baptist, who had lived and stayed with John the Baptist in the wilderness, uh, seeing how John uh, was more or less separated from what we would call a normal society, wearing sackcloth, eating locusts and wild honey. They would have certainly have been a change for them from a life of abstention to a particular, this particular kind of indulgence at a wedding feast. Now they are enjoying themselves in attendance at the wedding. Jesus, by his attendance at the wedding was sanctioning marriage as the only sacred relationship between a man and a woman. And that's still true, by the way. The Scriptures teach that marriage is for one man and one woman. Our society, many other societies around the world, have desecrated this Biblical and godly union. 
that God himself established and have perverted it into something that is virtually satanic. In marriage, marriage is the only biblical and honorable way for a man and a woman to live together under the same roof, in the same house. To do otherwise is to ignore God's sanction and disobey His command. It is sinful for people to live together in the same house outside of marriage. Now I'm sure that that sounds really strange and old-fashioned for many of our young people today in our world. But it is the truth nonetheless. And God will judge those who violate this sacred union that He has established. In marriage, a man and a woman become one and their union is sanctified by God. It cannot be sanctified any other way. The public testimony is the couple's way of showing their commitment to the promise that they have made to each other and to God. Now, Jesus being at this wedding sanctions this union. Warren Wiersbe states, Wise is that couple who invite Jesus to their wedding. I like that. Because he is the witness that really matters. Now there's an interesting note here to be made about the word invited. <clears throat> You'll notice it says, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. The word invited is the Greek word kaleo. Kaleo is used many times throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament. <clears throat> it is a major verb and it can mean many things based upon the context in which it is written or used. However, it's interesting that this particular verb is used by John here in relation to a wedding. And its last use by John is also in relation to a wedding. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. <clears throat> Very last book in your Bible. Revelation chapter 19. And notice what it says. <clears throat> John is in heaven, this vision that he has seen of the revelation of Christ. Verse 9, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited. Now, there's a little difference in use, a grammatical use, from 
chapter 2 of John to chapter 19 of Revelation in use of this word. In Revelation 19, the, ver- the, the verb invited is a perfect tense verb, showing that the action of the verb is complete and the results are ongoing. So those invited to the wedding in Revelation 19 are continually receiving the results of that invitation. Whereas in John chapter 2, it's a past tense point in time use. It, It speaks of the invitation being given and carried out at a point in time without any future results. So what is John trying to say? He's trying to say that the invited, those invited to this wedding in Revelation 19 are all a part of the bride of Christ. They're all believers. They've all been washed in the blood. They've all exercised faith in Christ and they are his bride. This is the greatest wedding celebration in all eternity. It was a future event that will take place when John received it. It's still a future event that has not yet taken place in reality, in time. God's invitation is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there are others who in time are invited, but many of those will refuse to attend. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. While you're turning there, I'll just say that that the others, (coughs) the others who have been invited will refuse to come and at their refusal they will be judged and punished according to their sins. Matthew chapter 22, look at verse beginning at verse 1. We're going to read through verse 14 and I want you to get the full picture of this because it's and I'll, I'll give a little commentary as we go through it. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, the Jews, the Jews believed that the kingdom of heaven was exclusively for them. They believed that it was a, that the kingdom of heaven was a Jewish thing. It wasn't For anyone else, it certainly wasn't for the Gentile nations. Even though the scriptures plainly said that God would take His good news to the nations, they disregarded that and believed that it was only for them. Verse 3. He sent His servants... To call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Notice this line now. But they would not come. 
Now this is all speaking of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel to the world, to the masses of people in the world. And there are many, there are many people who the gospel goes out to and, and many people close themselves off and refuse to hear it or believe it. The king's servants, his slaves, here are the New Testament prophets and preachers of the gospel of the kingdom. And they represent the king's son, Jesus Christ. What we do here each week, the times that we go out and we share the gospel with people, we are doing the work of the slaves whom the king sent, inviting people to the wedding feast of his son. But they would not come. Verse 4. And again he sent other servants. Saying. Tell those who are invited. See I have prepared my dinner. My oxen. My fat calves have been slaughtered. And everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And went off. One to his farm. And another To his business. And while the rest. Seized his servants. And treated them shamefully. And killed them. Does that not remind you. Of. The. Rage and the hate. That is seen in the world. Against the gospel. And against the. People of Christ. Who believe the gospel. And preach the gospel. It's taking place all over the world today. We see it, we see it clearly in Afghanistan. We see it in North Korea. We see it in China. We see it in South America. We see it in Canada. And we see it even here in the United States. The hatred of the gospel and the hatred of those who spread it. When this happened, verse 7, the king was angry and he sent troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. This is what God is going to do. In the end, he will destroy all of those who reject the gospel of Christ. And he will bring great punishment upon them. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Now, I think he's talking about the Jews here. Jesus came to his own. His own did not receive him. But what's the rest of that verse? As many as received him. So who are the ones that receive him? The As many as. Read on. He came to Israel first. Now notice. They refused the invitation. Now notice. Verse 9. He says. Therefore. Go therefore to the main roads. And invite to the wedding feast. As many as you find. Go out into the. 
Gentile world. Go out into the nations. And everyone that you meet, you invite them to my wedding feast. Take the gospel to everyone. Tell it to everyone. And that opened the gospel to the masses. Romans 11, 11. He calls, he calls people who were not the people of God, the children of God. <clears throat> Verse 10. And those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to look, to, came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Now, in the customs of the Galilean wedding, those that were invited to the wedding would have set aside wedding garments, clothes to wear to the wedding. So when the, when the groom came to receive and pick up his bride and take her to his father's house, she would already be dressed, as we said last week, she would be dressed in her wedding clothes and all of her bridesmaids would be dressed in their wedding clothes. And when the people of the town heard the trumpets sounding and heard the clamor in the streets, they would put on their wedding clothes because they knew that the groom had come and the wedding was now at hand. No one would enter into a wedding feast without being properly attired in wedding clothes. And so, when the king came in, he saw this man. He stood out in contrast to all the others because he was not attired in wedding clothes. So what does that tell us? We're talking about people on the main, in the main streets, we're talking about poor people, good people, bad people. How did they get wedding clothes? The king had obviously made provision for and clothed people in their, so that they would have wedding clothes. But this one person entered into the wedding feast without the proper wedding clothes. Verse 12. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Hear me carefully today, those of you who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ in the forgiveness of sin. When God, when you stand before God, He says to you, where did you come from? How did you get here before me? You will be speechless. There will be no excuses. This man had no excuses. He, had, didn't, he couldn't give a suitable reason why he didn't have the proper wedding clothes. He thought he could get into the king's feast on his own terms. I'm here to tell you today, no one gets into heaven on their own terms. 
The only way to get in is on God's terms. And His terms are through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is going to clothe every single invited person into His Son's wedding, having provided clothing for them. The Scriptures speak of them as robed in white, fine linen, pure and clean. Pure and clean. No one gets in unless they're pure and clean. Verse 13. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place where there will be weeping and gnashing, grinding of teeth. Speaks of pain. It speaks of punishment. He's talking about hell. And at that time, no resistance will prevail in God's judgment. No resistance. Now notice the last line. Verse 14. For many are called. Now we move from an invitation to a calling. Well, what kind of calling is this? It is a general call. It is a call that sends the gospel out and is preached and it falls on everyone who hears those words. Everyone hears it. It goes out to everyone. For many are called or invited, but few are chosen. Out of the, out of the general call of the gospel going out to people, there are those on whom it lands, whom it does its work, and it changes the heart, and it brings life to them. And those are the ones that will go into the marriage feast of the Lamb, God's Son. Beautiful pictures. Those invited to the wedding of the Son of God are all His bride. Now notice verse 3. The main circumstances that distinguish this wedding from all others is the line that says, they ran out of wine. Now that may not seem a, a big deal to us. Because in our culture, what would happen? Someone would run down to the store and buy more. But in, in Cana of Galilee, in this wedding, this was a very big deal. Wine was a staple in, in the life of the people of the Middle East in ancient times. And running out of wine at such an important event as a wedding was considered not only awkward, but embarrassing. It showed that the groom had not prepared sufficiently for the seven-day feast, which was his legal responsibility under the marriage contract. Merrill Tenney, in his 
Commentary on John writes, to fail to provide adequately for the guest would involve social disgrace. In in the closely knit communities of Jesus' day, such an error would never be forgotten and would haunt the newly married couple all their lives. People would constantly be saying, look, there's the couple who didn't have enough wine for their wedding. Wine in the Old Testament was an indication of joy and blessing from Jehovah. And there are many passages that teach this. One is Psalm 104, verses 14 to 15. Notice what it says. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen his heart. Wine to gladden the heart. Now having said that, I don't want anyone to misunderstand that the Bible in both the Old and the New Testament condemns the drinking of wine or any other strong drink to the point of drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin. I remember years ago, uh, I had a, a manager at a place where I worked who, he'd come in and he'd tell me about his weekend, how he got drunk and this and that and the other, and, and then he'd wake up and he'd drink more. And uh, So one day I just said to him, I'd been witnessing to him somewhat and uh, with, with, little, with little response. And so I just said to him, I said, you know, that, that, that'll keep you, keep you out of heaven. He looked at me and, oh, come on. I said, no, I'm sorry. The scripture says all drunkards will end up in the lake of fire. He was kind of speechless at first and then he started, started making excuses. I said, look, I'm just telling you the truth of what it says. You either take it or or leave it. Drunkenness is a sin. Now, grapes in biblical times were used, as they are today, to make juice. And it was juice that was ready for consumption. And there's nothing really that's much more pure than freshly squeezed grape juice and the juice that we get we buy at the store the welches or the other uh, brands that's been uh, pasteurized it's been it's been treated so that it will stay on a shelf for a long period of time grape juice will not stay the same if you leave it uh, untreated and without going into the to a long Explanation on how they treated the grapes. <clears throat> uh, if you left that juice to sit out in the heat, it begins to break down and ferment quite quickly. I remember when we went to uh, Bulgaria back in 05. We were at a church there and they were going to have the Lord's Supper. And, and they used a... Uh, 
They used a really obviously cheap wine for the communion service. And as it set out, it became very, very bitter and sour. Uh, it was almost like drinking a, a thimble full of uh, vinegar. It was so sour. And I thought, if that's what wine is like, I don't want it. Because I don't drink wine. Uh, not that I couldn't if I decided to, but it's just not something that I think I need or want. How it was used in Old, in New Testament times, they would boil the, the juice, they would boil away the liquid, it would become a paste. They would store the paste in jars, sealed. And whenever they, whenever it came time to drink, they would go to the jar, scoop out some of the paste, mix it with water, and in the heat it would start to ferment. And that alcohol fermentation process was there for a reason. Because the wine was often mixed with water, any, anywhere from three parts to nine parts water to one part grape juice. Certainly different than the wine that we drink today, which is highly alcoholic. Uh, even, even the Gentiles didn't drink wine like we drink it in our culture. At such a feast... The very best wine, the freshest wine, would be served. Uh, which consisted really of the sweeter, fresher juice. And if not aged properly, that wine could turn very quickly and develop uh, some alcohol. Mixed with water, it would take a great deal of it to... To make a person drunk. That wasn't the purpose for drinking it. Uh, wine was the normal drink of the day. At any rate, they ran out. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to him and told him that they had run out of wine. Now this is one of the two instances where Mary is seen in the Gospel of John. She's seen here at the wedding of Cana, and she is seen at the crucifixion at the cross of Christ. <clears throat> Those are the two places. That Mary would speak to Jesus about this difficulty shows that she was helping at the feast. She went to Jesus knowing fully his ability to help, but not knowing what he might do. His statement to her was, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now that sounds very sarcastic and disrespectful to us. I mean, if I say to my wife, Woman... Oh, that wouldn't be good. But that's not the way that it was intended or used by the Lord here when he said woman. It's equal to me say to a person saying ma'am or madam or lady in a kind, 
and, and honorable tone. And so it wasn't disrespectful. It wasn't sarcastic. We, have, we must understand that at this point in time, Jesus is entering into his public ministry. And the intimacy that he had with his mother previous to this would not be the same from now on. You notice he did not say, Mother, what does that have to do with me? He called her woman. Her, though she was still his mother, she wouldn't hold the same place in his life that she had held previously. And this is true. This is true of every person who gets married, or at least it should be true of every man who gets married. When our son got married, my wife took an apron to the wedding. And she stood up in front of everyone and she took a pair of scissors and she cut the apron strings. To symbolize that her relationship with her son was different now. This is what happened here. And so she wouldn't hold the same place that she had previously had with him growing up in Nazareth. Matthew chapter, this is borne out by several passages of scripture which I've given you in your notes, but I want you to turn to Matthew 12 and look at what he, look at what he says with regard to this. Matthew 12 verses 46 to 49. Jesus is at a particular house. There is a crowd of people. Verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is he saying? He is saying that the relationship to earthly families is outstripped by the relationship to God. Mary would have no doubt noticed the changes in her son since he had moved from Nazareth. And certainly she would have noticed that he has now five disciples with him. The reply, woman, is equivalent to ma'am. It is a polite but not intimate way of addressing someone. The change in relationship would cause Mary to see him not as her son, but as her Messiah, as her God. In fact, this is how she saw him as recorded by Luke in, the, in her magnificent 
Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The Mariolatry that we see practiced today among Roman Catholics is not something that Mary would have wanted. Jesus was simply saying to her, what does this have to do with me? They've run out of wine. What's that got to do with me? Literally, it says, what to me and to you? That's the way it reads literally. Or what does this have to do with us? In other words, Jesus is saying that Mary must not presume upon her son because he is the son of man come to show the realities of heaven on earth. She cannot presume upon him because she is not doing his bidding uh, or her bidding. She is doing the bidding. He is doing the bidding of his father. So he replies, my hour has not yet come. Now what's he, what is he saying? He is saying that he was fully conscious of what the father was doing. And he was in full obedience as to the decree of God with regard to his mission on earth. He knows what he's doing. He knows when to do and, and when not to do based upon what the father gives him through the indwelling spirit. He uses this phrase, hour, my hour, which refers to what, what was to come as the glorified Son of the Father. He uses it throughout the Gospels, John 12, John, 6, John 13, John 16, John 17. Over and over he uses this phrase, and he is thinking, and when he says that, he is thinking not about one specific event. He is thinking about the entire scope of his mission, which was to come to earth as a man, live a perfect life, die a perfect sacrificial death, rise from the dead, ascend to the Father, and take his seat at the right hand of God. All of these things... Enfold into one event in his mind. And he would not be distracted from the reason that he came in the first place. What does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Mary knew of his divine power, and it's very possible that she was. Asking him to reveal himself at this time. Isn't it time that you let people know who you are? But Jesus would only act as the Father had instructed him through the Spirit. And so the time for the full, Messiah's full glory as uh, to be revealed was not yet. There must first be the darkness of the cross and its suffering before the light of the glory of his victory is revealed. The wine was the symbol of that gladness of, and joy in the things that God will provide when he comes in his kingdom. 
Amos chapter 9, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows and him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. You see how wine is used? It's talking about the kingdom and what's going to take place in the kingdom. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Joel chapter 3, in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and the fountains shall come forth from the house of the Lord and the water from the valley of Shedem. It seems clear that Mary got the message at the remarks of Jesus. She did not regard them as a sharp rebuke. She turns to the servants and, and responds and says, do whatever he says, you do it. She didn't know what he was going to do. This was necessary for a couple of reasons. Because it would seem very strange for the servants to be taking orders from one of the guests. Also, it would seem very peculiar for them to do something that might seem very foolish on their part. Can you imagine what the servants thought when he said, fill these pots with water? With water? Water, uh, the water in Israel could make you sick. That's why they mixed wine with it. The alcohol would purify it. This is when Jesus adds his contribution I think I'm going to stop because I have another almost two pages, which I will put in the notes for next week. Just remember to get into the king's wedding feast for his son. You have to be invited. And only those who are invited And have accepted the invitation can get in. So that's where we leave it this morning. All right. Let me just make an announcement or two and then we will.